Before we start this episode, there is something you need to know about Alan, which relates to the reason he is back in prison. In 1986, Alan was convicted of two offences, for which he was fined $900. They were serious offences, but are in a different category of offending to murder. We've chosen not to disclose the exact nature of this offending at this stage, but I do want to mention it because we are trying to paint a complete picture of who Alan is and what he has done in his past. Alan was recalled to prison in 2012 for breaching a parole condition that related to this offending. He has remained inside ever since. I've never met Brendan or Kim Easton and I know little about how they've managed to pick up the pieces from that devastating night 33 years ago when their father was killed in front of them. Brendan and Kim would be 49 and 51 years old respectively. They might have families of their own now. Jobs to fill in the weekdays, errands to run in the weekends, busy lives. Why would you want to look back? At the beginning of this year... I decided to write to both men to tell them that I was looking into the fairness of Alan Hall's conviction, that I was keeping an open mind, that I wanted to learn more about who Arthur was, and that I would really welcome meeting them, even if it was off the record. To be honest, I wrote and rewrote the draft of that letter countless times. There was always that voice in my head, one that perhaps shares the views some listeners might have of journalists like me who contact grieving families, You know, the usual concerns and criticisms of muckraking, exploiting the family's trauma. But I genuinely wanted Arthur's sons to have a right of reply, the chance to speak about their father and how they made sense of it all. I posted the letter and waited to hear back. I had no idea if they would ever respond. Then, in March of this year, I received a reply. It read, Dear Mike, We acknowledge receipt of your letter and supporting information. The loss of our dearly loved father remains deeply painful and traumatic for our family. We are not in a position to participate in your unofficial review. Accordingly, we have no comment. We appreciate the time you have taken to contact us. Your sincerely, Kim and Brendan Easton, for and on behalf of the family of Arthur Easton. It wasn't the response I'd hoped for, but it was fair. Back in 1985, the Easton family did speak to the media. It was when the trail went cold. Brendan and Kim were put in front of a reporter to ask the public for any information which could help identify the man responsible. You feel your your house is safe and you you can go there and they would bother you. That's the voice of Brendan Easton in 1985. He's only 16 years old and being interviewed by a journalist, Alison Harley, in a local park in Papakura. Sitting next to him is 18-year-old Kim. The brothers are wearing matching yellow jerseys. Kim is self-conscious, his hands in his pockets and his eyes cast down. Brendan is a little more confident. The rest of their immediate family, their mother and siblings, are watching on from a few feet away in silence. The two boys look incredibly young. When somebody comes in and does something, it just makes you feel insecure. You know, you don't feel safe anywhere. After hearing back from Arthur Easton's sons, myself, I seriously questioned whether I should press ahead on this investigation. 
During the trial of Alan Hall, the judge, Justice Pritchard, had this to say to the jury as they prepared to make their decision. He said, you must put aside any feelings of prejudice or sympathy and arrive at your verdict conscientiously and dispassionately on the evidence placed before you. And that's the position I felt I had to take in this investigation. As you're about to learn, the jury did not get to hear all of the evidence. From News Hub, this is Grove Road. I'm Mike Wesley-Smith. Sort of physically, you could see there was a runt sitting in the dock. How this little guy was going to, why, you know, why would he go into a house and try and beat up this elderly gentleman and his two strong boys, yeah. who would be hopelessly outnumbered? As 1985 ticked over into 1986, detectives investigating the Arthur Easton homicide had their prime suspect, Alan Russell Hall. Alan had admitted once having possession of the bayonet and hat found at the murder scene. He'd given inconsistent explanations of how he'd lost them. And he also had no firm alibi for the time of Arthur Easton's killing. It's 10 o'clock. Papakura police investigating the murder of Arthur Easton say they are closing in on the killer. Detective Senior Sergeant Calvin McMinn says he's firmly convinced they would apprehend the offender, but there was still a large amount of work to be done. It was now January 1986, and there was indeed more work for police to do before they had enough evidence to charge Alan Hall with murder. The problem they had was the absence of any forensic evidence conclusively linking Alan to the crime scene. No fingerprints footprints, fibres or traces of Alan's blood. Then there was their two eyewitnesses, Brendan and Kim Easton, whose description of the offender had changed from what they'd told 111 operator Anthony Lindsay. Description of offender is a male Maori, approximately 18 years, 6 foot tall, black balaclava and jeans is the only description of clothing. Both boys told police neither had got a good look of the intruder because the woolen hat he was wearing was pulled down over his face. Also, neither said they could be sure of his race, despite what ambulance officer Bernie Holt had heard Kim say. And then the older one, he turned around and said, I should have killed the black bastard. Kim said he'd only guessed the man was Māori. But one thing both boys had been consistent about was the offender's height and build. Here's Brendan. His words are read by an actor. Six foot tall, medium build. He was very strong. And Kim. About six foot, pretty sturdy. The man they're describing doesn't sound much like Alan Hall, who at five foot seven was remembered by those that knew him as weedy. No way in this world, he's too skinny, too scrawny. He wasn't big. He never did exercises or went to the gym or anything like that. Then there was the question of what hand the killer held the bayonet in. Two days after the murder, a detective wrote a note saying Brendan was positive the offender was right-handed. But as he told me... Were you left-handed or right-handed? Left-handed. Alan Hall is left-handed. How good are you if you're right-handed? Fucking useless. With the Eastern Boys describing a right-handed, six-foot, very strong offender, on the 30th of January 1986, police decided to have Brendan and Kim do a reconstruction of the murder at the Grove Road address. Here's how Detective Senior Sergeant Calvin McMinn described the reconstruction in evidence he gave at Alan Hall's trial. 
we've had an actor read from the trial transcript. The purpose of travelling to the Eastern home was to carry out with the two Eastern boys a reconstruction of what they'd already told the police about the incident and the night their father was killed. So that the reconstruction could be carried out properly, both of the two Eastern boys were kept apart. McMinn described how Brendan went through the events of the night step by step, with police officers playing the role of other participants in the fight. As a result of what he told us, he was asked to point out amongst the police officers present any one of us who may have been the same height as the intruder that had come into his house. Brendan pointed to Constable Russell Lamb, who stood at about 5 foot 9. When Kim went through the same exercise, he also pointed out Constable Lamb. So according to the boys, the intruder was now more likely just 5 foot 9, much closer to Alan's 5 foot 7. And after the reconstruction, Brendan, who had been positive the offender was right-handed, now changed his mind, saying in a statement, Having gone through the reconstruction with the police officers tonight, it seems logical that the intruder had the knife in his left hand. Alan Hall was arrested for the murder of Arthur Easton on the 2nd of April, 1986. It was a day Shirley Hall never forgot. They were outside his work and he got a ride home from work with one of the people he worked with and they stopped the car he was in on the way home and arrested him. As soon as he got to the police station, Alan called his mum. I said to him, what do you mean? I said, they've arrested me. No, then he said, they yelled out in the background, I could hear them, and they, they told him man, that um, he's being arrested for the murder of Arthur Easton. And Jeff Hall says he couldn't believe the news. Actually, I thought, how can they do this? These, it's clearly obvious that he did not fit the description. He, he's incapable of actually going in against three large guys and, um, and physically, you know, controlling them. And it was for that reason that some police officers like Bruce Hesketh were also a bit surprised to learn Alan Hall was the man arrested. I was surprised to find out that that it was Alan Hall. The description of the offender from the the Eastern boys when they first were interviewed, albeit there were changes, but uh, certainly the original description was a six-foot Maori um, in the house that they'd fought with. Good morning, it's nine o'clock. Police investigating the murder of Arthur Easton have arrested a 24-year-old man. He will appear in the Papakuta District Court this morning. Facing a possible life sentence, Alan needed a lawyer and quick. Jeff Horse says the family turned to renowned barrister Peter Williams QC. Peter Williams is a really honourable lawyer. Yeah. He has a lot of, um, and he's a good lawyer. The name of Peter Williams may sound familiar. He was the defence lawyer in many of New Zealand's most high-profile cases. He defended the likes of Terry, Mr Asia Clark and Bassett Road Machine Gun Including Mr Asia and Arthur Allen Thomas, the farmer who served nine years in prison after being wrongfully convicted for the murders of Harvey and Jeanette Crewe in 1970. I'm more convinced than ever I was that Arthur Thomas was innocent. I have the greatest respect for the uh, legal machine the greatest respect for judges and lawyers uh, and uh, don't think for a moment that uh, I'm a sort of agitator all the time. That's not so. Um, I love the ritual, I love the courts, I love the dignity uh, and I, I love the way trials are conducted. 
Peter Williams died in 2015, but you get a sense from this interview with NewsHub, one of his last, of what drove him to defend people like Alan Hall. Oh, I like to be remembered as someone who strove to do his best to uh, to improve the uh, the lot of the underdog and uh, and to uh, increase fairness across the board. Peter Williams would later work with lawyer Bruce Stainton on Alan's appeal. Bruce still works in Auckland and remembers Peter very well. Peter was a, a, a very good advocate. It would be up to Peter Williams to win over the jury of 12 who were selected to decide Alan's fate when his murder trial opened at the Auckland High Court on 15 September 1986. There was um, enough room for doubt for... Peter Williams to make some fairly forceful submissions at trial. Under New Zealand law, journalists are prevented from contacting jurors about cases they've been involved in. But I tracked down someone who might just be the next best thing. What was your role in 1985? Someone who, like the jury, was hearing the evidence for the very first time that day in the courtroom. I was working at the Auckland Star, I was in the crime team, and my role was as High Court reporter. Brenda Ward, or Brenda Pratt as she was then, sat through every day of Alan's murder trial, one of about two dozen murder cases she covered as a reporter. Queen versus Alan Hall was one Brenda remembered as an even match-up between the two Peters, Crown Prosecutor Peter Kay and Alan's lawyer, Peter Williams. So Peter Kay was very charismatic and I'd seen him defend, uh, sorry, prosecute many cases. He had a habit of eyeing up the jurors. He'd look them straight in the eye and, you know, women would be swooning at his glance. Peter Williams was much more of a... He was an actor, he was charismatic as well, but in a different way, he was much more active. He was bringing people in, making them stand side by side. He had a very... You you couldn't miss it. It was theatrical. Theatrical, I guess, yeah. Among the Hall's family papers, I've actually found a letter from Peter Williams to Shirley Hall. It's from a few months before the trial, and in it, Peter writes... I must say firstly that I believe in your son's innocence. Well, it was pre- pretty positive for us because how could something like this carry on? And at least for Alan's brother Gary, at the start of the trial, the family were confident the jury would believe in Alan's innocence as well. It should be, um, I mean, laughed out of court. When everything looked at it truthfully and, and then they took a look at Alan and, and, and then described the events of what took place in the house, I mean, look at Alan and then, and then think about that, you know, worse. Uh, and I thought, you know, it'll just get laughed at, you know, and dismissed. All persons, please be seated. As Prosecutor Peter Kay stood to address the jury, the case he would outline was simple. A. Alan had admitted to being the owner of the bayonet and the hat. B. His explanations for not being in possession of them were inconsistent and not credible. And C, he didn't have an alibi. As Bruce Dainton recalls, it was clear the Crown case had some merit. It was the same for Peter as for me, that there was significant connection between Alan and, of course, the bayonet and the hat that were found at the scene. But Bruce says he and Peter always believed Alan when he said the bayonet and hat were stolen from his room. Alan's point was that they had uh, left his possession some short time beforehand uh, and that uh, he always and still uh, says that he uh, is innocent of this murder. Mm. 
The defence for Allen was also quite simple. It rested on the following factors. A. There was no forensic evidence linking Allen to the murder scene. B. His conflicting explanations to police could be explained by his backwardness, as Peter called it. C. He had no motive to commit the burglary. D. Despite the furious fight that Arthur and his sons had put up, Alan had no marks or injuries observed on him the next day. And finally, and perhaps most crucially, neither Brendan nor Kim had ever identified Alan as the killer. No recording of Alan's trial exists. What remains for the record are newspaper clippings, people's memories, and of course, the trial transcript. For defence lawyers, their job is to raise a reasonable doubt about the prosecution case in the minds of jurors. One of the key ways this is achieved is through their probing of the prosecution's witnesses. And one of Peter Williams' targets for attack was Brendan and Kim Easton's description of the offender who killed their father and the ways in which it had changed. Watching on, reporter Brenda Ward remembers Peter Williams' courtroom interrogation of both Eastern boys kept the jury transfixed. Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say it was when uh, Peter Williams was interviewing one of the sons. I think it may have been Kim. Yeah. And he had been, he'd said in a statement that the guy was a Maori. This is the actual exchange from the transcript voiced by actors. After the incident, did you describe the intruder as being a Māori? Yes. Prosecutor Peter Kay then stepped in to ask him to clarify why his description changed. Why did you describe the intruder as a Māori? It was just a guess in the heat of the moment. Did you see his face at any stage or skin? No. Kim said he didn't get a good look at the attacker's face or skin because the man's face was covered by the woolen hat worn down to his chin. Remarkably, Greg Hall still has the hat allegedly worn by the murderer. This is the uh, box of exhibits from the trial. It was among the exhibits that police had handed back to the Hall family after Alan was convicted. Greg showed it to me at his house. So this is what the intruder was wearing, was he? So he had this right over his face. That's what the, is that what the boys said? That's what they said. They couldn't see his face because the hat was right up to his like this, trying to fight two people. At this point, Greg pulls the hat down over his face to demonstrate how difficult it is to see through it. And how well can you see through that? No, I can see a tiny little bit of light coming from the windows, but when, in the dark areas there's no detail, just nothing. You can't see anything. No. At trial, Peter Williams asked for a similar demonstration of the hat in the courtroom. In front of the jury, he had Brendan Easton pull the hat down over his face and then walk across the courtroom towards him. The trial transcript records what happened next. Witness leaves witness box and proceeds to walk across courtroom but does not reach Mr Williams, bumps into furniture and prison officer, witness returns to box. Not surprisingly, Brendan then conceded that visibility through the hat was limited. It was concessions like this that Brenda Ward says made her believe early on in the trial Peter Williams was getting the better of prosecutor Peter Kay. Peter Kay was being attacked on lots of levels on the evidence that he was presenting. Um, and he was constantly having to backtrack and go over material that Peter Williams had highlighted. So he was on the back foot for a lot of the time, I think. And Peter Williams also honed in on Brendan and Kim's early descriptions of the offender being six foot and strong. This intruder is about the same height as you, approximately. Yes. Would the accused stand up, please? 
Evidence will be this man is 5 foot 8, maybe slightly less. In fairness, and imploring you to be fair, this intruder was actually taller than this man, wasn't he? In fairness, I, I wouldn't know. Here's Brenda again. Physically, you could see there was a runt sitting in the dock, and there was a great big policeman standing there who would have been the same size as Arthur Easton was, and you just couldn't compute how this little guy was going to... Why, you know, why would he go into a house and try and beat up this old, this old elderly gentleman yeah. and his two strong boys yeah. who would be hopelessly outnumbered. And according to Bruce Dainton, Peter Williams' questioning on these inconsistencies set him up for the next line of attack. That the Eastern boys' evidence changed only because of the murder reconstruction they went through with police in January 1986. First, the police hunted for a right-handed uh, 1.83 metre Maori suspect. Yet after Alan Hall became a suspect, the information changed to a left-handed 1.7 metre man. Brendan's subsequent belief that the offender was left-handed was supported by evidence from one of the pathologists who examined photos of Arthur Easton's wounds. But Bruce Stainton still doesn't buy it. And remember with the reconstruction, the police at that stage had their eyes on Alan. So they then conducted this reconstruction of the scene with the Easton boys, after which... The Eastern boys appear to have changed their uh, statements. The sons of murdered Papakuta man Arthur Easton have finished giving evidence after hours of sustained questioning by the defence lawyer for accused killer Alan Hall. Tomorrow the jury will hear evidence from police scientists about evidence linking Mr Hall to the murder scene. There is another piece of evidence given attention at the trial that I want to mention at this point. A police scientist told the court that a single blue fibre found on Arthur Easton's cardigan matched fibres from a blue jersey belonging to Alan. It had been seized during the police raid on the Hall family home in December 1985. This is uh, Alan's sweatshirt. It's a blue one. This is Alan's brother Greg again at his home showing me the actual jersey, another item handed back by police. Greg says it was impossible that this jersey was worn by the murderer. Well, I said back in October, on the night of the murder, Alan was wearing the sweatshirt. But he has a receipt from uh, December when he bought it. Under cross-examination, the police scientist did concede that the fibre on Arthur Easton's cardigan could have come from another source. So it's your belief that there's no way that that could have been the jersey worn by the murderer because Alan didn't own it? No, and there's no blood or anything on it. If you're stabbing somebody, wouldn't there be spurred or something yeah. on it? And you're close contact with a few guys... Throughout his attacks on the prosecution case, Peter Williams told the jury this evidence was just part of a broader effort by police to tailor the evidence to fit Alan Hall. And it was a claim he levelled straight to the face of Detective Senior Sergeant Calvin McMinn. As the transcript read by Actors shows. Ever try and get the Eastern boys to change their evidence? No, I did not. I suggest a patch-up of a dispute over the wrong height of the defendant. No patch-up of anything at all. I suggest that this case, insofar as putting it together as officer in charge, has been a series of patch-ups. There have been no patch-ups. That tense exchange concluded the prosecution evidence as it wrapped up its case against Alan Hall at just after quarter to five on Tuesday, the 23rd of September, 1986. The jury had heard from 41 witnesses, 30 from the prosecution and 11 from the defence. Now it fell 
to Justice Pritchard to sum up the evidence. He was quite um, sombre. He wasn't, you know, you know, one for theatrics. He was very deliberate. The judge told jurors the identity of the offender could only be established by circumstantial means. He said the intruder, whoever he was, had been in possession of Alan's hat and bayonet, which were both found at the murder scene. Then he posed one of the most crucial questions that has always lingered over the Allen Hall defence. And it was this. Was it reasonably possible that somebody else, not Alan, took the hat and bayonet to the murder scene? Because if it were, then Alan must be innocent. So I think the general opinion was that um, there was something wrong with that case for sure. And having heard the summing up, Brenda Ward says among some court staff and other gathered reporters, there was a belief the jury would find Alan innocent. I don't think any of us really believed that he was guilty. The problem though for Alan was the jury reached the opposite view. And then they came out, they all had their heads bowed. Here is Shirley Hall remembering the moment Alan's life, her life, all of the lives of the Hall family changed forever. The judge asked the foreman if they had reached a verdict, you know, just the usual. And then they asked for their verdict and they said guilty. Uh, I think my mum described it best as white shock. You're just, you're just alone, bewildered, uh, not knowing which way to turn actually. Where to from now, from, from here? I think I felt frozen to be quite honest. As for Alan, remembering that pivotal moment in his life all these decades later, he doesn't appear angry or animated in any way at all. Just normal Alan. When you heard the jury say guilty, what, what went through your head? How did you respond? Um, I kind of like felt sorry for them because they were misled. Look, Alan is not the first convicted murderer to make such claims, that evidence was withheld or a jury was misled. But as Alan was taken away that day to begin a life sentence, and the jury that had convicted him left to continue with their own lives, there was one small, and yet many believe, crucial piece of evidence that the jury never got to hear. It related to a man we have called Witness A, and the person he saw running on the night of the murder near Grove Road. I always considered that 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 was highly relevant to the case. It related to a description that was removed from Witness A's court statement without his knowledge. A description that was never disclosed to Alan's defence, the judge or the jury. The police had believed the man Witness A saw running that night was most likely Arthur Easton's murderer. And Witness A had told officers, including Bruce Hesketh, on three occasions that that man was Māori. I mean, these things never stay buried. The passage of time has brought out the fact that this was hidden uh, and and it has to be addressed because it's a a miscarriage of justice. Whichever way you look at it, it's a miscarriage of justice. In the next episode of Grove Road... I'm 100% sure he wasn't European. 100% 100% sure. Had you tried to put this experiment in court, a judge would have laughed. Yeah, I'm not interested in talking to you. If you've got something you want to discuss, I suggest you discuss it with the police in Manitou City. Don't bother me, don't ring me again. Grove Road was produced by Maggie Wicks. Audio production by Asher Bastian. Music by Asher Bastian and Grant Brody. 
Graphics were done by Kushal Bhatia, Vinay Ranchhood and James Brown, with help from Finn Hogan, Silka Wheel, Anand Hira, Tom Turton, Carrie Johnson, Melissa Davies, radio documentary maker Jenny Anderson, Michael Mora and Sam Farrell. To learn more about the case, go to newshub.co.nz forward slash podcasts. If you have any questions or tips about the murder of Arthur Easton, please email us at groveroad at mediaworks.co.nz.